man, it is a blessing to have you here, Lord. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for being honest. Um, and no doubt there's some people in this room uh, that, yes, you're going to pray for her, but maybe the Lord is putting something into your heart to go and serve abroad. Um, and I'm sure Lord would love to tell you more about that. Our scripture passage this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 through 3. A beginning of a brand new series in the book of 1 Corinthians. We'll be in it for a while. It is a robust book. My goodness, all sorts of things come up in 1 Corinthians. We're going to make our way through by God's grace. 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 3. Passage will be up on the screen. If you have a Bible, we would encourage you to pull that out and follow along with us. If you're able to stand, please stand for the reading of and the honoring of God's word. First Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you in peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Do you want to pray again for Laura? Um, Father, I pray for ongoing spiritual nourishment for the sake of persevering in a beautiful yet very difficult calling that you've given her. And I pray that our church family would be an encouragement to her even this morning and this afternoon. And Lord, I pray for uh, relationships, I pray for um, new life in Christ, everything that she was talking about, Lord, would you grant it? Would you, would you raise up some new believers in Chad very soon? Um, and Father, I do pray for this passage and for this whole series, that the Holy Spirit would move very powerfully, that we would have soft hearts to hear this letter, which there are difficult parts. Um, and so would you soften our hearts, and may we come into this uh, with a posture of humility, ready to learn, and for you to change us and to challenge us and to encourage us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There's a lot of cynicism these days about the church, especially here in the West. I mean, go walk through downtown with a t-shirt on that says, I love the church, and, and see what kind of conversations you might have. And you know the reasons that people cite for this cynicism. There's too much divisiveness in the church, too much disunity. Churches are far too personality-driven, too much of a production or a show. Churches are too impersonal and unwelcoming, tending toward cliquishness. Churches are compromised by bureaucracy and and favoritism. Churches hurt people and are regularly abusive. And then, depending on your theological persuasions concerning morality and ethics, churches are either A, on the wrong side of history, or B, have given in to our moment and preaching what itching ears want to hear. Many of you would surely agree with at least, at least some of those concerns. It's not just, you know, people out there that have them. It's people in here too. 
I know this from meeting with many of you that these concerns are not just intellectual, they are, they are experiential, and in many cases, we'll occasionally get connection cards here at City Church, like, you know, first-time visitor, struggling with church hurt, trying to figure out where to go from here. I hope City Church can be a place of healing and refreshment for those of you who find yourself in that kind of boat, despite our own imperfections as a church family. And may the Lord in his kindness safeguard us from inflicting new wounds. I think the epitome of spiritual arrogance may well be assuming that our church can only be a place of healing because, you know, we really get it. Only with the Lord's help can we avoid making our own contributions to the hurt and to the mess. But here's the thing. Almost 2,000 years ago, we're probably talking about 53 AD, the church in Corinth was dealing with a similar set of problems in a cultural moment similar in some ways to our own. And yet, the Apostle Paul, the author of this letter that we call 1 Corinthians, was far more hopeful than we tend to be in our day. Was he upset and corrective? Was he passionate about reform? Absolutely, we will, we will see that as we make our way through the letter. But was he cynical? Not so much. Which is such an instructive posture, isn't it, in this age in which cynicism is essentially a virtue and thoughtful nuance is for wimps. In an age in which we find mold in the bathroom and instead of dealing with the mold, we often want to burn the whole house down. Why this hope? Why does Paul continue investing in a church he helped start a couple of years prior rather than hammering out a blistering thread of tweets on Twitter or X or whatever it is he's saying? And what does this hope mean for us today as we try to sort through our own set of issues and live faithfully as one holy, set-apart people of God. That's what we're investigating this morning as we begin our series in 1 Corinthians with two reminders. Number one, God is working. And then number two, God is calling. Why be hopeful in a very cynical age? Why be hopeful about the church of Jesus Christ? Well, two reminders. God is working, and then number two, God is calling. Let's start with that first one. Church, God is working. The Apostle Paul's testimony is absolutely bananas. If you are unfamiliar with the Apostle Paul, you are in for a treat. Paul was a Jewish religious official who used to persecute followers of Jesus in the aftermath of Jesus' resurrection. At that time, he was called Saul. And by persecution, we're talking about sanctioning murders. But when Paul was traveling from Jerusalem to Damascus to do some more of this persecuting, he had a miraculous encounter with Jesus and himself became a Jesus follower. And by miraculous encounter, we're talking, this is Acts chapter 9, a light from heaven shined around him, and then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. I mean, that's its own sermon right there. That's a whole sermon. And it surely means that whatever fatalistic conclusion you've drawn about that person you care about, who will never believe and will never follow Jesus, is completely unfounded. So keep praying, keep ministering. You just never know. You really don't know. You think you know, but then you don't know. Paul's conversion rapidly catalyzed a lifetime of apostolic missionary service in which he planted churches. He started a slew of churches in areas near the Mediterranean basin. And one of those churches was the church at Corinth, which at the time was a metropolitan port city and the capital of the Roman province of Achaia, which today is part of southern Greece. You can read about Paul's first visit to Corinth in Acts chapter 18, a relatively lengthy visit that lasted one and a half years, approximately 49 to 51 A.D. And then after his departure from Corinth, he spent three years in Ephesus. There he wrote his first letter to the Corinthians, a letter dealing mainly with sexual immorality that is now lost. We don't have that letter anymore. And because that letter was somewhat misunderstood or perhaps disregarded, Paul, who was still in Ephesus, wrote a follow-up letter that we now call 1 Corinthians, which also deals with sexual immorality, as well as other matters like division in the church, idolatry, spiritual gifts, quite a lot, as we will see. That's the letter we're going to be dealing with but for reasons that will become clear as time goes on, I want you to know what happened after he wrote 1 Corinthians. Around 55 or so A.D., Paul left Ephesus to make a brief check-in visit to Corinth, mainly because a growing number of people in Corinth were beginning to disparage Paul and the gospel message that he was teaching. The logic for their disparagement was essentially this. Listen, Paul, he doesn't look very impressive, He's not a particularly eloquent speaker. Plus, he's experiencing all kinds of afflictions. Are we sure this guy is legit? He's just kind of weak. Is this the spiritual leader we're really looking for? Don't we want a, a prosperous, you know, kind of highly charismatic guy? Good thing we don't wrestle with this in our day, right? We're far more advanced. We, always, we want to hear from the humble people, not the, not the powerful celebrities. When Paul arrived in Corinth to deal with this situation, the Corinthians were actually very hostile to him, and that visit ended up being terribly painful, as Paul describes it. So Paul went back to Ephesus, and he wrote them a third, very severe letter that is also lost. Same graveyard as the first letter, I suppose. However, we do know that the letter delivered to the Corinthians by Paul's ministry buddy Titus led to substantial repentance and the Corinthian church, which reestablished some receptivity to Paul's apostolic ministry. So when Titus came back to Paul with this news of spiritual reformation, by this time Paul had made his way from Ephesus to Macedonia, Paul was encouraged, and he decided to write the Corinthians a fourth letter, which is contained in our Bibles as the book of 2 Corinthians, a letter that we preached through a couple of 
years ago. And he wrote this letter approximately 56 AD, and then he subsequently returned to Corinth for a third visit, where he eventually wrote the book of Romans about a year later. Four letters. The second is 1 Corinthians. The fourth is 2 Corinthians, because life would be less interesting if it was any other way. And notice that faithful ministers of the gospel, remember what Laura was just talking about, faithful ministers of the gospel shouldn't expect to live particularly linear lives. Do you see this? They should expect plenty of ups and downs, big ones, encouraging seasons, very frustrating seasons. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. The common salutatory style that Paul uses here as he introduces his letter, it really understates things, doesn't it? I mean, he was called all right, and his own will had nothing to do with it. He got the Lord's version of basically getting slapped upside the head, a light so bright on his way to Damascus that he walked around blind for three days and neither ate nor drank. And then a man named Ananias, see Acts chapter 9, verse 17, visited Paul, again at the time called Saul, and he laid his hand on him that Paul might regain his sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And once Paul regained his sight and was baptized, he immediately began his ministry as an apostle, someone commissioned by Jesus himself to be his ministry representative, his emissary. Obviously, Paul was establishing his spiritual authority, which is a very important step if you're looking to address what had become a very divided church with pride problems that's beginning to question your authority, even though you started the darn church in the first place. You know, greetings from the person who has the same spiritual authority as Jesus' own disciples. That's pretty strong. But can we please, please, please not miss what was, I think, the primary reason for Paul's hopefulness, despite all of the problems he was about to address. Do you see that Paul had a powerful, undeniable, personal testimony concerning God's work in his own life, despite the even bigger issues that he once had? And oh, by the way, God used a member of the early church, Ananias, to minister profoundly to Paul in a moment of great need. Ministry, by the way, is, as far as Ananias was concerned, that put his own life in danger because he was well aware that Paul was very recently killing people like him, and yet he ministered to him by laying on his hand. How are you going to bail on a church when they're having problems? when God saved you, when you were having even bigger problems and used his own church to do it. God's church has all sorts of problems because the people who make up the church and the local churches specifically 
they have problems. But at the same time, God uses that church again and again in supernatural ways. It reminds me of a comment that Jackie Hill Perry once made about her spiritual journey. She said, what healed me from church hurt was the church. So God was at work, had been at work in Paul. How is he going to give up on the church? And God was at work in this man, Sosthenes, as well, henceforth called Sos, because it takes too much energy and time to say it correctly. We can't be exactly sure who he was, but it's quite possible that this is the Sosthenes, or the Sos, mentioned in Acts chapter 18, the ruler of the Corinthian synagogue, ultimately beaten by a mob that was angry with Paul for, quote, persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. At the very least, they beat Sauce out of pure frustration since the Roman proconsul, who was overseeing the area, was totally ignoring their concerns. He was like, whatever, get out of here, that's your problem. But the beating also indicates that, that Sauce was at the very least sympathetic to Christianity, possibly even a convert. The ruler of the local synagogue becoming sympathetic to Christianity and possibly a convert, that is the power of God at work right there. Whether or not this is the, the sauce that Paul had in mind, when he begins his letter, it's, I'd say, very likely, but we can't be 100%. Paul cites his name to lend additional credence to his letter. Sauce was clearly well-known and respected among the Corinthian believers. So Paul was letting them know, this letter that I'm writing you, your man Sauce, he agrees with me. We're on the same page. Now look at verse 2, where we see even more evidence of God's work. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Paul had legitimate spiritual authority over the Corinthians. But the church in Corinth wasn't his church, was it? even though he started it. It was very much God's church from him and belonging to him and sustained by him. And as such, God sets apart the people who make up his church, including the local church in Corinth, as sanctified in Christ Jesus. And you know, that word Sanctified, it has some, has some movement in it, you know, like, like, like get out of here, Satan, because I'm, I'm sanctified. It's preaching, and you don't even know what the word means. But here's what it means. When we are united to Christ, through our faith in Christ, made possible entirely on account of God's grace, sinful people become holy, set-apart people. They become sanctified. And that's quite the change in status, isn't it? You know, you were flying 
you were flying Spirit Airlines, right? And you had nothing but a toothbrush in your pocket that they charged you $60 for. <laughs> but now you're a, a Delta Platinum Diamond Elite Plus 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 member, and even the umbrellas that they put in your drink have their own umbrellas. And they turn the plane around to pick you up when you're late to the gate, and they apologize for leaving too early in the first place. It's that kind of change in status, and it's all God. It's all God. The one who, as another apostle Peter puts it in one of his own letters, takes people who were formerly not his people at all on account of our sin, and then declares that they are now a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So there's God at work again, doing that transformational thing that he does. He's working in Paul. He's working in Sauce. He's working in the church at Corinth. I mean, my goodness, they're, they're sanctified. And he's working in us today, both individually as believers and corporately as a church. And he's working in the lives of so many other believers and churches, both locally and around the world. Do you believe that? If that's what scripture teaches, and it does, then we have so many reasons to be hopeful. And this is where I'm going to start preaching just a, mm, a little bit. We have so many reasons to be grieved when the church of Jesus Christ blows it, but not to give up on it. We have so many reasons to be righteously angry when the church of Jesus Christ causes harm to people, but to trust that God is still using it. So many reasons to be frustrated when the church of Jesus Christ is divided and bickering and polarized, but at the same time very confident that God will ultimately renew it and redirect it. And you know, if God wanted us to just give up on his church and go it alone individualistically as lone rangers, why would he preserve a letter like 1 Corinthians written to a church and put it in the Bible? Which brings us to our second reminder. God is calling. So number one, God is working so powerfully. And then now number two, God is calling. Or how about this? God is calling because he's working. Calling us to what? Well, as we're going to see, 1 Corinthians is in many respects. It's about obedience. Look again at verse 2, and this time we'll read through verse 3. To the church of God that is in Corinth, that those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So God sets us apart as his holy people. He gives us this new status. And then he also calls us to be holy, set apart people. In other words, to be saints. He gives us this new status, this, this new position, and then he calls us to live it out 
just as he called the believers in Corinth as well. And of course, all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, by the way, that this is a bummer of a verse for those who would like to believe that their particular church or denomination or movement has a corner on the market when it comes to true Christianity. All those in every place who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints. Which means that God is surely working more broadly than we realize. And we therefore have every reason to be encouraged when we hear reports of God working outside of our church or working outside of our denomination, whatever, rather than, you know, kind of suspiciously and, and pridefully saying to one another, well, that's, that's not us, so that must not be the, you know, the real thing. If you, want to be, if you want to be insufferable and probably miserable as a Christian, start trafficking in some kind of arbitrary exclusivity that goes beyond and probably obscures the only source of true exclusivity in Christianity, namely Jesus' claim that no one comes to the Father except through me. So all people in all places who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ are called by God to be saints, which means that at all times and in all circumstances, we can actually live this way. Because God's not interested in playing tricks on his people. And here's why. Number one, here's why we can live this way. Number one, we are living in light of our new status, this new identity. Not performing in order to secure or to achieve our status, which sets Christianity apart from other major religions, and honestly, it sets Christianity apart from the values and the principles of those who claim to believe in nothing, who often end up spending their lives trying to live up to standards of whatever group they want to be a part of or whatever status they want to achieve. Every single day, I am not exaggerating, I am reading some article like, you know, social scientists are trying to figure out why everyone is so depressed. I don't know, maybe it's because performative lifestyles are exhausting because it's like cliff diving into anxious waters. But if you're in Christ, you're not performing to achieve a status. You are living out of a status that God has already given you. And then number two, here's why we can live this way. Here's why we have a chance in the world at being saints. The God who powerfully worked in us by his grace to make us his holy people he continues to work powerfully in us to help us live accordingly as his people and grow spiritually. The grace, it, it flows and it flows and it flows. Thus, this opening blessing from Paul, seen in various iterations in his other letters as well, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Church, that is not a pleasantry, that is a reality. Grace to you, again and again and again and again. When you become a Christian, you don't just get a shot of grace and that's the end of it. You get an IV. You get an IV of grace emanating from the Father 
and accomplished and applied by His Son, Jesus Christ, which equips us to live as saints by the power of the Holy Spirit, and it equips us to repent when we don't live like that and assure that we're forgiven in Christ Jesus, and it equips us to experience real peace in an anxious world, what we might describe as a joyful state of well-being with the God of the universe. Shalom. And because God is doing the calling here, because he's calling us to live like this, we can expect results. Church, when God's power goes out, it accomplishes what it goes out to do. And that includes reshaping the affections and the lives of his people. The language of verse 2 points at this, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Called meaning the decree has already been made and the outcome of the decree is secure because that's the nature of God's decrees. God and the word chance never belong in the same sentence. Let me end with this. Where does all of the spiritual growth happen? This, this business of saints living like saints. It happens in community. It happens in community with other believers in the church. And that's one of the reasons why Paul wrote to the church of God in Corinth and not to a few spiritual Navy SEALs in the group while discarding the rest because, well, forget those guys. I'm just writing to the five or six of you that have it together. And you know, the Corinthian believers, think about this, they had who they had. Realize that Christians in the early church, they didn't have 15 churches to pick from with different worship styles or preaching or ambiance or whatever. They just had, wait for it, the community of believers in their particular city or town, with various leaders raised up to shepherd that community. See, for example, the commissioning that Paul gives to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. I think it's a mistake to make that prescriptive, you know, as if every city today should therefore just have one big communal church. But my goodness, it does remind us that modern consumeristic, you know, kind of church hopping maybe, is a very recent invention, much more recent than we might imagine. In Paul's day, there wasn't much hopping. Their, their hopscotch court just had like one space. You were on it or you weren't. Which meant that community-wise, you got who you got. Whichever believers that God happened to raise up in your particular city, there wasn't any of this picking and choosing which also meant, at least theoretically, that everyone got got. You became a believer, and then you were in the family, full stop. And then you make a go of it together, like it or not. By the grace of God, you live together. 
even though you'll have different personalities, you'll have different political persuasions and affinities. You work through conflict together, you rejoice together, you mourn together, and ultimately, what? You grow spiritually together. The bummer in my mind, I think this is under-discussed, about fairly consumeristic kind of hopping around the church and another church and another church or even kind of shopping is that inevitably when we do that, people get left out because we're probably looking for a community of people that are kind of like us, which means that people who are already on the margins or maybe a bit socially awkward or whatever, they get left on the curb. Are there occasions in which we sometimes need to leave and to find a new spiritual community? Yes. We don't have time to press too deeply into that right now, but I will say that those circumstances should be the exception, not the norm. And here's the other thing. When we move around, especially when we're avoiding uncomfortable circumstances like the kind of divisiveness that was going on in the Corinthian church, we actually miss out on an opportunity for deep spiritual growth. Because the fact of the matter is that God uses broken, messed up churches with all kinds of problems to shape us, to form us, to cause us to really wrestle with God. Again, sometimes we do need to leave, but very often we need to stay. And the really good news is that God will use the mess that we find ourselves in to do things in us spiritually that are very hard to do outside of that kind of mess. So it's a really good idea to plant ourselves somewhere and stick around and then watch God work. Instead of asking ourselves, you know, is, is this working for me? We ask ourselves, who has God put around me? And how can I love them sacrificially? And let's close with this reminder. Jesus loves his church so much that he died for it. He knows their problems more intensely than we will ever know them, and yet he died for it. If anyone ever asks himself, how can I love the people that God has put around me sacrificially? It was Jesus. And so Jesus ends up being our example and our guide of how to navigate messy situations in the cynical age. And by the way, he's also our guide when we realize, as will often be the case as we go through 1 Corinthians, that we are falling short in all sorts of different areas. Because the same Christ that makes it possible for us to be a sanctified people is the same Christ that offers us lavish forgiveness and grace and restoration. Amen.